tonight. Try to stay brief tonight. Pastor Smith, let me know they have to stay within the three-hour limit, so I will definitely try tonight. And uh, thank you to all of you, and thank you to, uh, for Pastor Smith for having me come down. Uh, our accommodations are very nice, and we definitely enjoy them, staying there relaxing at the Best Western. And the Mills, uh, we're very grateful for that, and we appreciate that very much. And uh, just a brief word about myself. I was raised in a, a Roman Catholic church. Uh, uh, my, my parents were very devout Roman Catholics. It wasn't until my mother got sick as a teenager that we stopped going to the church. Uh, she was pretty much the, uh, the engine that drove us to church. And uh, after she got pretty ill and wasn't able to go, we stopped going to church. But God and his providence had a different plan. Uh, during that time, uh, I was extremely lost, you could say, and very rebellious as a teenager. I began to, around age 17, thinking about issues such as life and death, heaven and hell, where I would go. Uh, God, in his grace and his sovereignty, uh, gave me a book. I, it fell into my hands, a book by Dr. Henry Morris titled Science of the Bible. And in there, it presented the case for why the Bible is the word of God, giving different evidences to back it up. And boy, that really didn't bring me necessarily to, to, to faith in Christ immediately, but it established a foundation that was shaken as a, as a youngster. And that foundation was the belief that the Bible was the inerrant, inspired uh, word of the living God. And so at that moment, I realized that the Bible is not just a religious book on the same level as other world religions have their religious books. The Bible proved, not only did it say it was the word of God, it proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And God used that in my life to, to really show me if the truth is going to be found in regards to salvation, in regards to having your sins forgiven and knowing for sure that you're headed towards heaven and not towards hell, that that answer would come from the pages of the word of God, the Bible. And so God used that, and the only Christian in our family was a cousin of mine who was going to a Pentecostal church. And so uh, obviously I wasn't just walking to a church by myself as a 17-year-old, but I ended up going to that Pentecostal church and, and hearing the Word of God preached there. And it was through a radio program uh, uh, back when Walter Martin was still alive, who wrote the book The Kingdom of the Cults. It was through his program that I heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure I, I probably heard it before then. But at that time, you could say the lights went on and I got it. I understood it. I, uh, he quoted Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 about salvation being by grace through faith. And it seems like everything just fell into place. And at that moment, as looking back now as a student of the Word of God, God drew me to himself through the preacher of the Word of God on the radio. And at that moment, I believed the gospel. I didn't utter a certain prayer. I, I didn't know really how to pray, but I knew this. I knew that I was lost on my way to hell and that salvation was by the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I believed. I trusted in Christ. And I knew God saved me when I heard the gospel on the radio. After that, I began to attend Valley Bible, which was the charismatic church that we were going to. And then uh, I met my wife working at uh, an elementary, uh, junior high school as a teacher's aide. Uh, a couple of years after I got saved, I met my wife there and we happened to go to the same charismatic church. It was such a large church and uh, I never saw her. I guess she sat on the other side of the, of the church and we met each other. And at that time in my walk with God, I realized I needed to go somewhere where the word of God was more faithfully taught. And, but I was too chicken to go by myself. And so after I met my wife, I had someone to go with me. That way I wouldn't be alone when I enter in a new church. And so uh, we did that. 
And over the process of time through reading and studying the Word of God and reading good Christian literature, I came to Baptist convictions uh, in regards to uh, what the Bible teaches, uh, in regards to baptism being for believers only, uh, in regards to all the other Baptist distinctives, the priesthood of the believer, uh, etc. And after I came to those, that conclusion through my study, I realized I had to be part of a Baptist church, of an independent Baptist church that was not unequally yoked in an unbelieving convention. And so I called around, and there was, uh, in, our, in our city, it's very integrated, but in the outskirts, not so much as far as racially there. And there was a little town there, and, and most of the folks migrated from Oklahoma. And there was an independent Baptist church there, and one in Bakersfield. I was sort of fearful to go to the one over there in, in that, that part of town, because the, one of the first independent Baptist preachers I heard was a man by the name of Peter Ruckman. And Peter Ruckman's a segregationist, as well as some other problems with him. And boy, I was scared. I mean, I'm going to walk in there, be the only Hispanic there. They're going to say, you sit in the back. And well, I said, oh, man, I was fearful to go. I don't know if I want to go there. And, and so I went to my home church because my pastor's last name was Grande. You know, Grande as in Taco Bell Grande, you know, Grande Burrito. I said, man, this guy got to be okay. It's Grande. And I got there. He says, man, I'm not, I'm not Mexican. I'm Italian. It's Grande. I said, oh, well, I, I didn't know. I thought Grande. I've been ordering Grande Burritos. I thought, you know, you're Hispanic. But lo and behold, that was a church that uh, I, my wife and I, we just, we, right after we got married, we joined that church and were faithful there in that church. I served as a deacon there, as a Sunday school teacher. Uh, my wife served in the nursery as well as a Sunday school teacher and also preached in the prison weekly, uh, in the state prison, which I still do today, but I don't do it weekly because I don't have the time. I do it monthly. And so that's a, a passion as well in my heart. All right, John chapter 17 is where we are at tonight. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the Word of God. Here in John chapter 17, we see the Lord's Prayer as our Lord, one member of the Trinity, talks to another. And we're given the privilege to, to read this tonight. John 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that is all humanity, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that, thy, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would illuminate our understanding, that thy Holy Spirit would teach us your truth through your word. And Father, as we deal with this important doctrine of election, pray that you would give us a humble attitude and a grateful attitude. That we will be filled with gratitude as we leave the doors of this church building tonight. 
knowing that you've had mercy on us because you freely chose to, not because of anything in us, because, but because you are good and gracious towards undeserving sinners. And pray, Father, that we would be motivated in our evangelistic outreach, that we would realize, as we realized this morning, that no one is beyond the grace of Almighty God, and that you would give us a new boldness, uh, that you would fill us with greater courage, the witness of those who are lost in their sins, and that we would give them the only message, which is the power of God unto salvation, the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight's message is titled, Election, Friend or Foe of Biblical Evangelism. Election, Friend or Foe of Biblical Evangelism. I remember there was a small controversy within our family when Arnold Schwarzenegger ran to be governor. And there were people who were asking, well, who are you going to vote for? Uh, do you think Tom McClintock, he should take it since he's more of the conservative guy. You're one of those extreme Baptists. I'm sure you're for him. Or are you going to be for Arnold Schwarzenegger? Are you going to vote for him? Who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to elect as governor? One certain member of my family says, I know who we should vote for. All the families should be united. We all should vote for Arnold. He makes the best movies. Don't you realize he always kills the bad guys? We ought to support Arnold. And that was his great political savvy he had and his wisdom. And I said, well, I'm going to vote for Tom McClintock. He's a conservative. He's pro-life and He's not for special rights for homosexuals. He holds a conservative line. I think I'm going to vote for Tom. Tom's more faithful. He's an old-fashioned Republican. I think I'm going to go for Tom. As we sat there, we began to discuss this issue of electing, and of election. Who are we going to choose? And as human beings, we choose who we believe is the best candidate, the person with the best qualifications for that high office of being governor. And so when the idea or the doctrine of election is discussed, immediately we think, well, God must have chosen the best people. Look, here we are in a Baptist church tonight. God must have chose us because we're different than our drunken neighbors who are going to hell. Yet that is the reasoning, the unbiblical reasoning of fallen man. And many times Christians reason like, like unbelievers. The truth of the matter is, God does elect sinners, but is based merely upon the good pleasure of his will. It's based upon the goodness of God, not the goodness that is within the sinner. If anything, as we come out tonight, let me summarize the sermon. If anything, you ought to get tonight is this, as we discuss the doctrine of election. It ought to humble you that God chose to be gracious to you, to bring you the gospel, and to bring you to repentance and faith when he did not have to. You could have been born in a Muslim nation, as many in our church, we have a large Arab family. And there are some that within their family, in fact, one man's a Palestinian. You know how many Palestinian Baptist churches there are? Not very many. Why? What made the difference between this man? Was he smarter than the other Palestinians? No, God could have bypassed every one of them. He would have been perfectly just in damning them all, as God would be just in damning all of us. But yet God had mercy on us. God chose to bring it. Isn't that what the apostle of love, John, said? We love him because he first loved us. If anything, we need to come out with tonight is an attitude of humility. An attitude of, I am what I am by the grace of God, as Paul said. 
Tonight, I believe savingly on Christ. I am trusting in his merits and his merits alone. I see Christ not as a, just a regular Jewish criminal dying on the cross. I see him as Lord and Savior dying for my sins, conquering death. Now I can face eternity because of him. And the one that made the difference and brought you to that knowledge is God. That ought to humble you because he didn't have to. It was only the mere grace of God that he chose to have mercy upon you and bring you to salvation. And he, we owe it all to God. Does God elect men to salvation like we elect governors and presidents? And of course, the simple answer is no. With all questions that are asked today, it's not what do you think, what does your mom think, what does your grandma think, but what saith the scripture? What does the word of God say? As we begin to look at what scripture says in regards to election, let me give you some brief a theological definitions given by historic Bible-believing Baptist men. J.P. Boyce, in his abstract of systematic theology, said of election, God of his own purpose has from eternity determined to save a definite number of mankind as individuals not for or because of any merit or work in theirs nor of any value to him of them, but of his own good pleasure. Augustus Strong stated, election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure on the account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men to be the recipients of the special grace of his spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of his salvation. That is to say, God did not force men to be saved, but he made unwilling sinners willing to be saved. John Brodus, the former president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said, From the divine side we see that the scriptures teach an eternal election of men to eternal life simply out of God's good pleasure. B.H. Carroll, which is interesting, I remember going to my uh, several churches where they would give out the trail of blood, and a very good booklet it is, and of course they thought it was a good booklet, but they don't even know what the writer believed of his theology, B.H. Carroll, his theology and his belief on election, he stated, everyone that God chose in Christ is drawn by the Spirit to Christ. Everyone predestined is called by the Spirit in time and justified in time and will be glorified when the Lord comes. Years before, John Calvin even came on the scene. The Waldensian Confession of Faith of 1120 A.D. states, God saves from corruption and damnation those whom He has chosen from the foundations of the world, not of any disposition, faith, or holiness He foresaw in them, but of His mere mercy in Christ His Son. These are the doctrines that Baptists have held historically. In fact, I believe the reason of the dismal descent into the pit of Arminianism or man-based theology is a result of the influence of men such as John Wesley and Charles Finney and D.L. Moody, none of them being Baptists, by the way. Noel Smith, the influential preacher of Bible Baptist Fellowship, a, a, a fellowship that our church used to belong to. This president of the Bible Baptist College in Springfield said this, I quote, Knowing God as I do through the revelation He has given me of Himself in His Word, when I am told that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, I know it means that the triune God has done and is doing, always will do, all that the triune God can do to save every man, woman, and child. What is hell? It is an infinite negation. It is infinite chaos. It is more than that, I tell you. I say it with profound reverence. Watch this. 
Hell is a ghastly monument to the failure of the triune God to save multitudes who are there. I say it reverently. I say it with every nerve in my body. Tent sinners go to hell because God Almighty Himself cannot save them. He did all that He could and He failed. For that is short of blasphemy. Short of blasphemy. Jesus didn't come for sinners to seek Him. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as you study John chapter 17, he completed the work the Father gave him. And all his sheep will hear his voice, and they will come unto him, and he will give them eternal life, and no man will pluck them out of the Father's hand. George Mueller, great man of God that he was, the man who would pray continually for God to meet the needs of his orphanage, A man of great faith, at times he would not ask for the needs that he had there at the orphanage. It would run out of food and he would pray. And a dairy cart would break down in front of the orphanage and they happened just to, happened just by accident, of course, give them that milk for the kids. He was a man of great faith, never made an appeal. He never sent out letters begging people for money. He simply would get on his knees and pray to God Almighty. Many stories have been told of George Mueller, but what was the theology? that gave this man such great faith to do such a work for God. And that theology was a strong, firm belief in God's absolute, complete sovereignty. He wrote, Before this period, I have been much exposed to the doctrine of unconditional election, particular redemption, and final persevering grace. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely an instrument and being made willing to receive what the Scripture said, I went to the Word, reading the New Testament from the beginning, with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. And even those few, shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrine. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, I, as I might be and as I ought to be, yet by the grace of God, I have walked more closely with Him since that period. My life has not been so, so variable and I have made, that I may see that I have lived much more for the Lord Jesus Christ now that I believe these precious truths. Tonight, as before we get into the text here in John chapter 17, I just want to give a little survey on how the doctrine of election, election is taught in the Old Testament. Then we'll move into our text here in John chapter 17. In the Old Testament, it teaches over and over that God elected the nation of Israel. Now, God didn't have to. He could have elected one of the many Canaanite nations. He could have elected uh, 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 the Philistines. He could have elected many peoples that were on this earth. Why? Because all of them were equally sinners. All of them equally deserved the justice and the wrath of God. But yet God chose to call out this man Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and to make a great nation by which he would make an unconditional covenant with them. God elected Abraham and his people by the mere free grace of God Almighty. In fact, it's interesting 
In Joshua 24, as Joshua is speaking to all the people, he gives a little background to Abraham and his family before God chose him to make a great nation out of him, the nation of Israel. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nicor, they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led them throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave it unto Isaac. What was God saying? God was saying among Abraham and his family and Ur of the Chaldees, they were not God seekers, but God rejectors who worshiped pagan gods. So then why did God choose him? By the grace of God. He didn't have to. He didn't have to choose Abraham. He could have bypassed Abraham and had given Abraham what he deserved and given him justice and that eternally. But God in his grace moved to choose Abraham among all those pagans. Not that Abraham sought the Lord, but the Lord sought Abraham out. Nehemiah 9.7, the language of choosing is used in regards to Abraham. Thou art the Lord God who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur the Chaldees and gavest him the name Abraham. This is another way God's saying he chose Abraham. Why did God elect to make a great nation out of him? God did it out of his free grace. Another way we see it, this choosing of Abraham is through the word word know or to, to know. For example... When it says that, 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 that uh, Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. It means more than just knowing as in, yes, I know you exist. It refers to an intimate relationship. When God Almighty came and spoke to Abraham before, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Then he answered his own question. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. What do you mean, I know Abraham? That is, he knew Abraham as the man that he had chosen to make a great nation. He knew Abraham intimately like he did not know the Sodomites intimately as his people. In fact, this way of knowing, referring to relationship that God has with Israel as his chosen nation that he does not have with any other nation is used in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. You only, God says, have I known of all the families of the earth. Does that mean that God didn't know the Filipinos? That God didn't know the Mexicans? That God didn't know the Ethiopians? No, God knew of all of them. But he knew none of them as his elect nation as he knew Israel. Why? Was it the Israelites were better? No. It was the mere grace of God by which he elected Abraham in that nation. Moses connects the exodus with God taking possession of Israel and these words in Deuteronomy 4.20. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as ye are this day. Over and over he says how he bore them up on eagles' wings in the same way that a, that a mother eagle would take her chicks. In the same way God took Israel, he did that for no other nation, only for Israel. Why? Because they were God's chosen nation that God had freely chosen. In Isaiah 44 and verse 1, the word of God says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, 
Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, thou Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Over and over, God emphasizes how he has chosen Israel. Not that they, for they can get a big fat head and think, wow, we're chosen. Well, we're better than everybody else. But for they could be grateful that he did choose them and didn't bypass them and allow them to get justice. God gave them grace and mercy. That is the reason why God would tell them to recall and to remember their election of God. Not that they can be filled up with pride, thinking they're all that, thinking they're better than everybody else, but that they can be humble and grateful to God. Because God did not have to choose them. But God did it out of his mere pleasure and of his grace. Isaiah 45, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, His Maker, Over and over, God says, I'm your maker. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that has freely chosen you. When Abraham fathered two sons, God chose only one of them. Isaac, not Ishmael. By the way, God wasn't under obligation, but he freely decided to choose Isaac. And when Isaac had two sons, even before they were born, God chose only Jacob and not Esau. We say, well, that's not fair. How could God love Jacob, as it says in Romans 9, and hate Esau? That's not fair. You know what fair is? God hating them both. That's what they both deserve. Jacob wasn't any more worthy. He was a scoundrel. He was a conniving guy. Both of them deserve God's wrath. But yet God had mercy on one. Because that was his choice. He is free to choose whomsoever he pleases, even as he has created a a child from miraculous birth if he has to. This is the truth that John the Baptist had in mind. Remember when he talked and spoke and preached to those proud Pharisees that prided themselves in their Hebrew heritage? And Matthew 3, 9, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. In other words, don't think you're all that. Don't be prideful before God. In other words, don't ever think that God is obligated to choose you because of some human distinctives, because somehow you're inherently better than someone else. You're not. You're not. If God needs descendants from Abraham to fulfill his promises of election, he can create them out of stones. God is unlimited. You can't box God in. You can't limit the sovereign God of the universe. It is absolutely free, his grace. God made the same point, of course, when he chose Jacob and not Esau. In fact, in Romans 9, it's put this way, in Romans 9.10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, that is God, It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now let us go back. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. Let's look a little bit more clearly why God chose Israel among all those nations. Why? Deuteronomy 7 gives us a little bit more information in regards to why God chose them. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. 
The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now we live in a society that is very racially sensitive. I say, well, I don't think that's fair. How about our racial group? I don't think that's right. We're going to sue God. That's it. That's wrong. We're going to have a march. And we're going to say no justice, no peace. Or except we'll bring in some false reverend to come and help us. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, God didn't have to choose any of these people. All of them were wicked and rebellious. You know, you know what kills me is when they will act, they'll actually go out to the streets and people will say that they want justice. Do we realize what we're asking for when we say that? That's like saying, I want to go to hell. I want God to punish me for all my wicked thoughts, breaking the law of God. Oh, God, give me what I deserve. What are you saying? You don't realize what you are saying. Here, God chooses among all the peoples of the earth. God freely and unconditionally elects a man and a nation. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. It's not because Israel is better. By the way, isn't it interesting? The Israelites will say, yes, yes it's true. It's not because we're, we're better than anybody else, but we are better now than everybody else. And how they would puff themselves up. Just like Christians today. Yes, God has chosen us. Yes, yes. Yeah, God did, but you better be very humble about it. Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to. Nor choose you because you were more numbered than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. Not because you were the greatest. In fact, you are the sorriest. That's what God is telling them. Verse 8, watch this. This is the reason. But because the Lord loved you. That's it. Because he freely loved them. That's it. Oh, God chose me to be saved because God saw that, that sparkle in my eye. He saw potential in me. He said, a mind's a terrible thing to waste. And he saw my great mind. And he saw the potential that I had. No. God freely in his grace moved to open your heart as he did Lydia. That when you heard the gospel, you did not turn like every other man, woman, and boy away and say that's a bunch of nonsense and walk away to your damnation but God drew you savingly to Jesus Christ and all the glory and all the honor to that goes to the sovereign God who saves sinners God doesn't set his love upon them because they qualify for his love he loves them because he loves them it's within his nature to be gracious to undeserving hellbound sinners now let's go back to John 17 here we are permitted to stand on holy ground and hear a conversation between two members of the Trinity. Our Lord's prayer here concerning the elect reveals at least two things which we will look at this evening. Two things. We're going to see, number one, that the elect are a limited number. And we're also going to see, secondly, that they are an evangelistic number. To our first point tonight, the elect are a limited number. Number. And what I mean by them being a limited number, this doesn't indicate the elect are necessarily a small number. As we read in Revelation 5.11, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels around the, around the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. So thousands of angels and of the redeemed are worshiping the Lord. 
In Revelation 7, 9, it says, And after this I behold, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Here are people, and a great multitude of people, and they are worshiping God. Notice, they're not shaking each other's hands. Great job. Wonderful decision you made. Yeah. Man, you're a lot smarter than your brother. That's why you're up here. Man, you're smart. Boy, those people in your neighborhood, they're real dumb. But you? Boy, that's why you're up here. Man, good job. Yeah, yeah. Is that what went on? What are they doing? The elect which come from every tongue, tribe, and nation are bowing before God and worshiping Him for all the glory of their salvation goes to the God Almighty, to the Lamb who sits on the throne. They're worshiping the sovereign God that saw fit to bring them to repentance and faith. So the elect number, though they are a limited number, it doesn't mean they're a small number. They're a great multitude. And as a side note, you don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. That's why we preach the gospel to every creature. But that's why we're guaranteed results that men will get saved. God will bring sinners to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it is a specific number which can be neither enlarged nor diminished. Having made reference to all flesh, Christ singles out some from among them who will, he will give eternal life. Look at verse number 2 with me. As thou hast given him, that is the Son of God, power, authority over all flesh, that is all humanity, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That is, Jesus has the authority from God the Father to give eternal life to all that the Father has given as a love gift to the Son. Listen, at Christmas time, because we love our children, we give them gifts. At Christmas time, I'm going to buy my son probably a train. He likes trains. And I do that because I love him. But the love that I have for him is small compared to the love that the Father has towards the Son. I cannot understand fully how much the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. But as an expression of the Father's love towards the Son, He gives the Son a love gift. That love gift are the elect among this sinful, rebellious mankind. God plucks them out and gives them as a gift to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have already been given to Him in election. Look at verse 6 with me. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Look at verse 9 with me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. In other words, they belong to God. God has chosen them, and He's going to give them to the Son. They belong to the Father. Verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition of the Scripture might be fulfilled. Drop down to verse 24. 
Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Here Jesus prays, all the ones that you've given me, Father, may they be taken to heaven to see me in my glory. They have been given to the Son of God before time began. Why? First of all, as a love gift from the Father to God the Son. No less than seven times our Lord makes reference to this giving. It runs through His prayers, a dominant thought, and is foundational to the entire construction of this chapter. In fact, it's interesting that our Lord only gives some, our God the Father only gives some to the Son. Remember the conversation in John chapter 10, there's where Jesus spoke of himself as the great shepherd. That classic passage where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my father's hand. For my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And as Baptists, we believe in eternal security that those whom God saves, he keeps them safe. And boy, that's good preaching right there. But the verse before that passage, Jesus looks at prideful men who think they're all that. And Jesus says to them, ye believe not because you're not my sheep. What? I'm not one of the chosen? Who do you? I am chosen. Look at me, boy. Look at my heritage. Look at my religious works. You don't listen. And you won't obey the gospel because the Father hasn't chosen you. The doctrine of election humbles man and realizes the only reason we have chosen Christ is because he has first chosen us. And these men, these Pharisees that rejected Christ, they had this big ego, this big, they had a balloon filled with pride, and Jesus came and popped it and said, you don't listen because you are not his sheep. He didn't say, if you will but listen, if you will just try me for a moment, you can become my sheep. I'm knocking on the door of your heart, please open the door. No, no, no. He says, you will not listen because you're not my sheep. But my sheep do hear my voice. And I know them. And I give eternal life to them. What made them sheep? The choosing of God before eternity. That's it. The grace of God Almighty. A man does not believe to become one of Christ's sheep, but he believes because he is one of his sheep. In John 6, 37, Jesus made it so clear, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. In John 6, 39, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. All the sheep that the Father has given to the Son, all of them will, not may, might, maybe, hope so, cross your fingers, knock on wood, but all of them will be saved. And John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up in the last day. They have been given to the Son in eternity past and in time they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel to the glory of God's grace. I want you to note also that these that are given to the Son, that they are kept by the intercession of the Son, the fact that Jesus prays for believers. 
for God's elect. Look at verse 9, John 17, 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Well, that doesn't seem fair, God. Jesus should pray for everyone equally. Don't, doesn't he realize the American democracy? We need to understand the Bible as submissive Christians, not rebellious Americans. As we submit to the Word of God, the Word of God is the final court. And what God says, what is just, that is just. And what God says is right, that is right. There is no standard God must, must measure up to. He is the standard and here makes it very clear that he doesn't pray for all men generally and vaguely. He prays for those that the Father has given him, and them only does he pray for. In Romans 8, 34, who is he that condemneth us? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. For us. For us. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he, Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For them. It is them that the Father has given to the Son that the Son intercedes for. And you better believe Jesus' prayers are answered. Election displays the God's purposeful, prevailing love and affection for his people. George Whitfield, perhaps one of the most effective evangelists of the last cent, well, last, uh, boy, says the time of the Apostle Paul, probably, and said, Nothing could possibly support my soul under the many agonies which oppress me, but a consideration of the freeness, eternity, and unchangeableness of God's love to me. May he enlighten me more and more to know and feel the mystery of his electing, soul-transforming love. Nothing like that to support us under the present and various future trials. But the Lord has apprehended us and will not let us go. Men and devils may do their worst. Our Jesus will suffer nothing to pluck us out of his almighty hands. He says, whatever happens to me, whatever suffering I go through, I know that God has chosen to save me and has given me as a love gift to the Son. And the Son prays for me and He will keep me to the end of time. That sustained Him. But how are these sheep brought? How are these sheep whom God has elected in eternity, how are they brought into the fold? How are they brought to faith in Christ? Look at verse 20. John seventeen twenty. They are brought to him through proclamation of the gospel. Verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me. Watch this. Through their word. Specifically in the context is referring to the disciples, how they would go out and they would preach the gospel. And through the preaching of the gospel, watch this, to all men, God will save some. But those whom He chose to save in eternity, that are brought to faith in time, it is through the preaching of the gospel. It's not like here's a guy, he's walking down there in the ghetto of Delano, and he's, a, he's one of God's elect, and he's carrying a beer, he doesn't go to church, and all of a sudden, oh, I got saved. Well, I'm one of his elect, boy, I better put this beer down. Oh, I wonder what Baptist church I'm going to join. It doesn't happen like that. People, oh, he's elect, and all of a sudden he's zapped into, into becoming a Christian. 
No, it is through the preaching of the Word of God. God has chosen to use human instruments. Remember in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days? And how Jesus came to the, to the stone and he had men take away the stone. He told the men, take ye away the stone. Now I have a question for you. Could Jesus have moved the stone by himself? Of course he could have. Anyway, he created the universe by the word of his mouth. Out of nothing. God said, let there be light. And there was light. But Jesus chose to use human instruments to roll that boulder away. And when he came out, as he had those rags all over his body, as he was bound in grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin, Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. Jesus could have snapped his fingers. Immediately he's in a nice suit. But he did it. He chose to use human beings. In the same way, God's elect are brought through the preaching of the gospel. As we preach the gospel to every creature, as Mark 16 commands us, that is the way by which men are brought the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, who, who spoke on election and human responsibility much, said the following, The system of truth revealed in the Scriptures is not simply one straight line, but two. And no man will ever get a, a right view of the Gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. For instance, I read in one book of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Yet I am taught in another part of the same word, that, quote, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I see in one place, God in providence presiding over all. And yet I see and cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases and that God has left his actions in great measure to his own free will. Now, if I were to decree that man was so free to act that there was no control of God over his actions, I should be driven to the very near of atheism. And if, if, on the other hand, I should declare that God so overrules all things that man is not free enough to be responsible, I should be driven at once to antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestinates, and yet that man is responsible, are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is in our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. I, if, then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained. That is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. What was Spurgeon saying? If men are taught in the Bible that everyone is responsible for their choices, if a man rejects Jesus Christ, God is just, perfectly just, and damning his soul to hell. That men are personally responsible, yet God predestinates all things that come to pass. How can we reconcile the two? Spurgeon says, I don't have to reconcile, I have to just believe both of them. He said, well, I don't understand it. I don't understand how a brown cow eats green grass and produces white milk. But I drink it in the morning with my cornflakes. We just accepted it, didn't we? Because that is just a truth. It's a given fact. And it is the fact that men are responsible because God said so. And it is true that God is absolutely, completely, 100% sovereign over every every son and daughter of Adam in all this universe. So the elect are a limited number. Now secondly, this is the most exciting part now, 
The elect are an evangelistic number. Look at John 17, 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. What did God the Father send Jesus to do? Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus says, in the same way that the Father sent me, now I sent my disciples into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, God didn't have to choose. He didn't choose 11 of the greatest men that history has ever produced. 11 of the most brilliant men. They're simply 11 average men that Jesus chose to be his apostles. In the same way, after he chose them, he chose them for them to go and to preach the gospel to every nation. It wasn't so much after Thomas and James and all these men were elected to be apostles. They said, you know what? We're elected. We're one of God's chosen. Boy, now an apostle. Boy, this is great news. I think I'm just going to sit at home now. We're going to pat each other on back and say, man, what a great job. God has chosen. Whoa, that's good. I just relax now. Let's take it easy. It wasn't like that at all. Yes, God had chosen them. But they had work to do as a result of being chosen of God and elect of God. And what was their job? Their job was to go just as Jesus did. To go preach to sinners. And how did Christ preach to sinners? Well, sometimes he preached openly. In John 6, he preached to a crowd of probably around twenty to 25,000 people. And he preached the truth to a crowd. In John chapter 4, he dealt with a woman who was an outcast, who was divorced five times, living in fornication, who was a Samaritan of a different racial background. And yet Jesus went out of his way to find her and to give her the good news of salvation and bring her to faith in himself. Jesus dealt with individuals. He dealt with crowds. But this is the point. He dealt with sinners. In the same way, the apostles, the elect, all disciples, who are, of course, we are the elect of God, is being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We are to be an evangelistic number. Turn with me. Let me give you an example of how the election of God is, is an encouragement to evangelists. Go with me to Acts chapter 18. Here Paul enters in the city of Corinth and he preaches the gospel. Yes, some get saved, but much great opposition comes against him. Imagine if people beat you up for sharing your faith. Imagine if you got fired from your job and you got beat up and they try to take away your home. You would be a little bit hesitant to witness. Oh, no, not me. I'm ready to give it all up. You'd be just a little hesitant. Come on now. You would. You'd be a little bit scared. Like, wait a minute. I don't know. Next time I hand out that track, I'm going to look around. You're going to be very careful. Paul was human. And he's preaching the gospel. Few are being saved and he probably wants to quit. Read with me here in verse number 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. 
And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So here he is. He has suffered greatly. He wants to quit. And the Lord comes to him and gives him four reasons why he should continue to preach the gospel. The first reason is this, simple. Because God said so. If God says speak, guess what that means? Speak. That is the first reason, by the way, you and I should evangelize. Why? Why? I don't understand it all. Because God said so. That's the first and main reason, because God told him, speak, hold not thy peace. And secondly, he reminded him, I am with thee. So not only did he tell him to preach, to continue to preach, regardless of the opposition, then he told him, I am with you. My presence will be with you. I will support you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And then he tells him, God promised that no man shall set on thee hurt. In other words, no one's going to come and kill you. I'm going to give you safety during this time. And then he tells them, God told them that he had, for I have much people in this city, verse 10. Now the city of Corinth was a tough place to evangelize. If you know the city of Corinth with the, with, with the, uh, the Acro-Corinth, the temple, to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and all the prostitution and the wickedness that went on in that city. Their, their, their love, their affection for human philosophy. The rejection of the bodily, of, of the idea of resurrection. Boy, if there was any place that was hard to evangelize, it was Corinth. And there he is, he's already suffered much in Corinth. There he is, he wants to throw in the towel, and he's about to give up. God comes to him in a vision, tells him to keep on preaching, tells him that it would be with him, and then tells him these things. I have much people in this city. Much people, only a few people got saved. Ah, but there are some. That the Father has already given to the Son in eternity past. There were some elect in that city. Well, who were they? Well, I don't know. Spurgeon said if they had a big E on their back, I would go walk around, lift up shirt tails, and find out who the elect are. It makes it easier in witnessing, believe me. And we knew who the elect were, boy, we could say, well, I'm going to witness to this one. They're elect, but I'm not going to waste my time. Paul didn't know. All God told him is, there's much of my people here. You go preach. You do it boldly, watch this, and the guarantee is this, some will get saved. It is not up to the preacher and his methods. It wasn't the fact that Paul was a great salesman. It was the fact that God in eternity past had chosen some of this rebellious, wicked, vile city of Corinth. The very idea to Corinthianize meant to be with the prostitute, such a wicked vile city that God says I have much people here many will be saved I have chosen them and how are the chosen brought in to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ Paul stick with it don't quit keep on preaching why because God who is sovereign almighty and all powerful he guarantees results results that's what keeps a true preacher going and I just couldn't get him saved today no 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 were you faithful were you faithful? Then God will do the work that he wants to do. You just be faithful. Some plant, some water, but the Bible says God gives the increase. For, boy, it's been close to eight years now. I've gone into the North Kern State Prison to preach the gospel there. We have men of the most wickedest backgrounds. Child molesters, murderers, rapists. You name them. I mean, they're wicked, vile. At any time they can get mad and attack me or someone else. There's times when, boy, I can literally see the hate in their eyes. Oh, man, man. Those people, some of you, I wouldn't go in there. Why? Because they're hard to get saved. 
Oh, with men, it is impossible to get them saved. But not with God. Not with God. The doctrine of election encourages me as it encouraged Paul. To go to these hell-bound sinners that have no thought of God. The only reason they're there is because they want to they give away their what they call contraband cheese, which is basically drugs. They want to give to one another. They're there to pass notes to have another man killed. They're there with wicked intent. But the truth is, I'm not relying upon them seeking God. I'm relying, I'm relying upon a sovereign God who seeks and saves sinners. I know that God can take the most hell-bent man, man like Saul of Tarsus, and sweetly save him. I know God can sovereignly save any man. So I go in there and preach the gospel freely, openly, and boldly. Knowing as Paul did in Corinth that God has much people, yes, even in prison, even in Corinth. When we say, well, if election is true, then I'm just going to sit at home. You don't understand what the Bible's teaching here. Election did not make Paul kick back. It made Paul bold. It made Paul fearless. It made him aggressive to preach the gospel, knowing that God can and will save some. He will. It's not a maybe. It's like, oh, I hope God, give God a chance. He wasn't there with some weak evangelistic trick. He was there preaching repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And God told them, I have much people in the city. You stay with it. Stick with it. Many will be saved. What did the doctrine election do for Paul? It made him more bold. Again, quoting Charles Spurgeon, he said, The greatest missionaries that have ever lived have believed in God's choice of them. Instead of this doctrine leading to inaction, it has ever been an irresistible motive power. And it will be so again. It was the secret energy energy of the Reformation. It is because free grace has been put into the background that we have been so little done in many places. It is It is in God's hand the great force which can stir the church of God to its uttermost depth. It may not work superficial revivals, but for a deep work it is invaluable. Side by side with the blood of Christ, it is the world's hope. How can men say that the doctrine of distinguishing grace makes men careless about souls? Did they never hear of the evangelical band which was called the Clapton sect? Was Whitfield a man who cared nothing for the salvation of the people? He who flew like a seraphim throughout England and America, unceasing proclaiming the grace of God, was he selfish? Yet he was distinctly a free grace preacher. Did Jonathan Edwards have no concern for the souls of others? Oh, how he wept and cried and warned them of the wrath to come. Time would fail me to tell of the lovers of men who have been lovers of this truth. Of God's sovereignty. That's the historical and biblical record. If we say, well, God elects sinners out of his own unconditionally, he decides to save some and not all, and it causes us to be lazy, then we have misunderstood this doctrine. It ought to do what it did to Paul and make us more bold, knowing that God can save. That God can save and pray, believing that God will save. Sinners who say they have no time for God, no desire for God, but yet God can freely open their hearts up as he did Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. One more illustration here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul 
Paul is writing to Timothy here, his last epistle before he is beheaded for the gospel's sake. And he's getting prepared, as he's getting prepared to have his head chopped off, he's writing how he has suffered much for the gospel. And look at one of the things that has encouraged him and it has driven him to the point where he's willing to be executed for the gospel's sake. What is that doctrinal foundation? We see it here in 2 Timothy 2.9. Wherefore, or wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, to prison. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I want to endure anything, any torture, any beheading. I endure it for the elect's sake. What was he saying? I endure it because I know that some among massive, this wicked world, that God will save some. So I'm willing to endure anything because I know God will elect and save sinners and God saves sinners through the gospel. James 1.18 reminds us of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth. Yes, God elects sinners in eternity before time began, but the elect are brought to salvation through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men are brought, are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Josiah Connor summarized it very well in an old hymn. "'Tis not that I did chose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart will still refuse thee. Hast thou thou not chosen me? Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed me and set me free. Of all thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee.'" T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owes none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing if I love thee, thou hast loved me first. In the same humble attitude that he accepted the doctrine of God's absolute complete sovereignty is the same way we're to humbly fall before God. And thank Him that God has had mercy. He has not given us justice. He's given us mercy for Jesus' sake. And may that not only give us an attitude of humility tonight, knowing that election is a biblical doctrine, but it may it embolden us, may it give us courage, the witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And not, not say, well, I don't have the personality, or I don't have that personality dynamic. I'm not that happy-go-lucky salesman type. You don't have to be. God saved you and made you just the way you are. To reach the people that are around you that no one else could reach. You be bold, knowing that God is sovereign. Knowing that God's in control. Knowing that if God be for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of election. May it humble us in reverence, awe, and worship tonight of thee. And Lord, may we realize that this doctrine is a friend of biblical evangelism. May it encourage us. Give us and grant us thy strength, O Lord, to carry the gospel to every creature, that you would be honored and glorified, for you are worthy of all praise and honor. In thy name we ask it. Amen.